It's just this retroactive cancel culture, clear virtue signaling bullshit that is just like, ugh, it's fucking gross in and of itself. That whole movement, that whole concept, that whole idea. You guys really have to stop that shit, man. You can't whitewash history. And you also have to realize that more than one thing can be true simultaneously. They're not mutually exclusive things. What up, what up, folks? What's going on? Welcome to the Spun Today podcast, the podcast that is anchored in writing, but unlimited in scope. I'm your host, Tony Ortiz, and I appreciate you listening. This is episode 188, and in this episode, I speak about watching season two of Dave, about Andrew Cuomo resigning as governor of New York after serving a decade, the Afghanistan war drawing to an end, and my five borough bike tour woes. Something went terribly wrong during this year's five borough bike tour for me personally stick around to find out exactly what dum 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 but first before we jump into the episode folks please stick around and listen to a very quick way that you can help support the sponsor day podcast if you so choose the sponsor day newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free all you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. You're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address, and you'll get the very next one. Dave season two is out now. It's been out for a while. You can stream every episode as of this recording, and it airs normally on FX, but you can also catch all episodes via Hulu, which is how I watch. I spoke about episode one here on the Spun Today podcast. I'm sorry, not episode one, season one here on the podcast after that wrapped some time ago. And I was definitely looking forward to season two, and it did not disappoint. For those of you who don't know, the show chronicles the life of Dave Bird, which is a white Jewish rapper, aka Lil Dicky, loosely based on his actual life. And the show is written by Jeff Schrey, and the show is written by Jeff Schaefer, Louv Rock, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Alex Russell, and Dave Bird, aka Lil Dicky. Dave, the show as a whole and specific uh, to this season is written in a way that's very engaging. It's smart. It's witty. It's funny. It's the type of writing that when we see Dave's perspective on things is very neurotic. He's always on top of everything in terms of the details of things, even the smaller details of things. 
which to me is very relatable because there are parts of my personality that I see reflected in that. But he's so focused on details that very often, especially from a social perspective, he misses the forest for the trees. And in a lot of episodes, what we're able to see is that when he does see the forest eventually, he's often the last one in the room that has that realization. And we get to see how he corrects for that. And we anticipate how he's going to self-correct. Will he self-correct? Will he, quote unquote, make things right? Now that he is able to see and has all the information that he was lacking before, because again, he was bogged down and focused on every single minor detail and not paying attention to how his actions were affecting his surroundings and the people within his orbit. Now that he was able to consciously zoom out and see what is he going to do with that information. And I love the show for that because we get to see microcosms of that within each episode, which could just be me projecting, but that's definitely a takeaway that I get from each episode and especially season two in its totality. And there's tons of like memorable scenes and anecdotes like throughout the entire series, funny and or insightful lines, great dialogue. And like I touched on before, moments of self-realization. But the following episodes are some of my favorites, like as an episode as a whole. Beginning with episode three, which is outlined as follows. Dave and Benny's friendship blossoms in strange and unexpected ways, leading them to confront questions of privilege, race, sexuality, and dermatology. Benny is Benny Blanco, a music producer, which is an actual real music producer. He was actually just recently on um, an episode of Jesus and Mero, which I'll link to in the episode notes for you guys to check out. It's a, it's a cool episode and interview that, that they had. And he was either staying in the character or his character is very close to his actual persona. Because during like the Jesus and Mero interview, he was very much like the character that we see in Dave. Now, when the outline says that their friendship blossoms in a very strange and unexpected way you could definitely highlight that sentence there because it's very gay not that there's anything wrong with that but they definitely exaggerate certain stereotypes to make the point that they're trying to make uh within the episode of the or at least uh within like those first few scenes the differences between like white folks and black folks in terms of sexuality and how like white guys will like play around with quote-unquote gay stereotypes and flicking each other in the balls and teabagging each other flashing each other etc 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 whereas black dudes don't play that shit they're very homophobic when it comes to things like that and again i'm speaking in aggregate and from the perspective of that type of stereotype that's out there so they play around with that concept within this episode to the point that like benny thinks it's a good idea or something to like put bubble gum on his ass and try to fart to like make a, a bubble but then the gum just gets like stuck and then dave has to use peanut butter to because he thinks peanut butter will help the gum slide out because like entangled in his hair in his asshole hair or <laughs> some shit and then um they invited gata which is little dicky's hype man to come over and he comes with a friend of his, another black dude. And then it's like that clash between those types of perspectives. And what I like about what this episode does super well is that they'll like flesh out 
certain topics and actually discuss them in like dialogue instead of like, oh, that's gay. No, fuck you. No, I don't do that. No, you do that. Instead of like that type of approach, like they literally just sit down and start having a conversation. Like, wait, you never like showed your, your penis to your friend, like as a goof, you know, not in a sexual way, but just a, like in a fun haha way. And then you hear like the other perspective and it's t- that specific topic aside, it's an attempt to, at least from my, my take from it, to attack a specific stereotype via open dialogue, honestly and openly without bias to either side. And I love that. And again, that's a thread that we see throughout season two. Episode six was another one of my favorites. And the official synopsis for it is Dave joins an exclusive online dating app and matches with a pop star, which was Doja Cat, by the way. And then technological courtship ensues as Dave gets caught up in the excitement of a modern day romance. What I thought was cool from this episode is the fact that in and of itself, it's exploring what dating is nowadays, right? Like the modern angle to dating which is not just like phone calls and text messages and you know it's dming it's actual dating apps swipe left swipe right and it kind of highlights at least from like the outside looking in how superficial that can get and how just from the perspective of like swiping left or right whichever one it is that you know you accept or, or don't accept someone if you don't accept someone you swipe left or right whichever one it is and if you do you swipe the opposite direction and that's based on like their profile picture and stuff like that and if you happen to accept someone and they also happen to accept you then you get alerted that there's a match and then you can start like speaking to them and shit but it becomes superficial in the sense not not dissimilar from you know real world because in real life you would like see someone at a party or somebody would introduce you you would meet them through a mutual friend or something like that And you would superficially kind of sort of swipe left or right in your mind by either engaging them or asking them for a phone number or, and you know, them reciprocating or not, et cetera. Right. So this is just like a digital way to do that, but it eliminates that barrier of, I guess, getting like shot down and embarrassed because you know, they don't know if you swipe left on them and they only know if something good happens, if you swipe right on them or vice versa. So Without the, with the negatives being taken out of the equation, right? Like that negative aspect of like the nerves, oh, what if I get shot down, et cetera. And the positives only being highlighted. It's kind of like online dating, at least like through these apps and shit, becomes like the participation trophy of dating, if that makes any sense. It's like everybody wins, kind of, in a weird way. Or nobody loses, rather. And then that kind of trickles through the entire experience like matching or not matching with someone becomes like a whatever like a flippant thing and you know swiping left or right on someone just becomes like a mundane kind of scrolling through your timeline type of thing which i would imagine transfers over to when you actually take the next step to like meet someone or date or whatever i don't know it just seems like a more watered down experience But on the flip side, on the positive side, rather, it does seem like from a statistical standpoint, like your odds increase exponentially, right? Because there's so many more people literally at your fingertips. It's not like a chance encounter of you meeting someone through somebody else or bumping into someone randomly. So that's a plus. But anyway, so Lil Dicky uh, syncs up with Doja Cat and they have like a day's worth of 
like dialogue through text, which is great, by the way, for someone whose preferred mode of communication is via text. It was cool to see text conversation at like a high, witty, funny, flirty kind of level. And along with all its pitfalls, like, you know, miscommunications and not being able to convey intent in some cases, because if you wanted to, you should be able to. There was even like a, a slick save from Dave's part where he took like a screenshot and meant to send it to one of his boys, but resent it back to her. And then he had to like, when she was like, what the fuck, kind of, he had to like correct for that, like on the spot in the moment. And the episode also shows like the hectic Dana life of these famous people. I thought it was interesting to see just how all the controlling interests in her life, like depend on her doing what she does, you know, for their own livelihoods, but how like the power dynamic is kind of ironically shifted in that like her PR people try to control like what she says, you know, she's doing like a photo shoot under, you know, she had pre-approved certain outfits but they brought a whole set of different outfits so it was kind of like giving her like that false yeah yeah yeah, here you can pick what you want to wear even though you know we're really gonna pick what you wear anyway type of scenario and the director for the photo shoot being late but then getting down on her because you know she's not posing how the director expected and kind of like that push and pull power dynamic that she had to like deal with throughout the entire episode and like having to fight for and, and ask for lunch to be scheduled within her day, her busy schedule, et cetera, et cetera. And that was interesting to see because I'm sure, you know, it's exaggerated again to drive home like the effect or the point that's trying to be made there. But we from the outside looking in, when we do see the stars and famous people, we don't like appreciate that side of shit that they do have to go through. We just see like the glitz and the glamour and stuff, right? And then again, with the downfall in the ability to clearly convey the intent and and stuff like that through the text message the date that they're supposed to go on winds up falling apart at the end and then at the same time it re-highlights the fact that even though it fell apart at the end dave is able to hit up some other chick that he matched with that he was initially going to go out with before the prospect of doja cat came up and she wound up canceling on a date that was already waiting for at a restaurant for the prospect of going out with Lil Dicky. So again, that like quantity versus quality thing or aspect rather to the whole online app dating thing gets re-highlighted there. But it was definitely a dope episode. Episode seven was dope, which is outlined as Dave and Emma reminisce about their advertising days while battling present day identity crisis at one of hip hop's largest showcases. So in this episode, it was cool because we got to see Emma, which is a, a friend of Dave's, how they came up together through like a a nine to five advertising agency that they worked at. And it showed a bit of the origin story between them two. And we also saw Emma be reminded of her wants and desires and how she wants to like shoot and direct. And she kind of like reminisces on that. And then we see that later, that concept, that idea of her, you know, not sort of like going with the flow anymore, not doing things that she wants to be doing but reinvigorating that desire to like shoot and direct. And we see that book ended with her telling Gaeta that she wants to direct a music video of his, which is pretty cool. Episode eight is outlined as Dave has a professional setback and is forced to spend more time with his parents. Family time has never been more eye-opening. 
And I really like this episode because of how it showed Dave not really knowing his parents as individual people. And I know that's something that I've suffered and many other people, you know, different times in, in their lives come to that realization as well, where we kind of see our parents as our parents, like those are my parents, but not as the individual people that they are, that they themselves had parents, that they them, you know, have children, friends, lives, jobs, dreams, aspirations, etc. So this episode does a very interesting job of showing how Dave comes to that realization that one, his parents are individual people, and two, that they're not infallible. And then him coming to terms with that, with how they have issues within their own relationship. They have medical issues personally. They have lives outside of being the parents of Dave. So that was a very interesting and relatable topic that they explored there within episode eight. Now, episode nine of Dave season two was easily my favorite episode of the entire season, hands down by far. And it's the penultimate episode where, or which is outlined as, Dave journeys to a legendary recording studio, hoping to break through his creative block, but is forced to confront his greatest obstacle, his own ego. So in this episode, Dave goes, because throughout the season, by the way, he has like a screenwriter's block. So he's supposed to put out his debut album after having a few like hit songs and going like viral on the internet and stuff like that. But he has writer's block throughout like the entire season. He hasn't like done much of anything. And he tries to go the very formulaic route early on of, you know, oh, K-pop is popping. So let me try to do something with a K-pop star and then, you know, ride that wave and, you know, fake engineered shit like that, like just shows um, that fell apart before it actually be, like became a thing, which was cool to see. Just kind of like, just stay in your lane, do what you do. If you pop, you pop. If you don't, you don't. Which I think is a life lesson takeaway worthwhile for all of us. But besides that, he had one song which was like a reflection to his now ex-girlfriend slash current friend. And it was very like heartfelt and honest. And it was different than what he normally does. His manager, played by Andrew Santino, hilarious comic, a great role. And great acting job that he's doing on, on this series. And host of the Whiskey Ginger podcast, by the way, which he has had most of the folks from the show on his podcast, if you guys want to check that out. But he hears the song and thinks it's great. And then that kind of gets Dave to like play for the first time to, for his ex. And she really likes it, but doesn't want him to like put it out there or whatever. Um, but anyway, besides that, he has he's had this writer block like the entire season, right? So he goes to Shangri-La, which is Rick Rubin's famous, infamous, famous home slash recording studio, I believe in like Beverly Hills, somewhere in Cali. And Rick Rubin, for those of you who don't know, is Rick Rubin is a legendary music producer, co-founded Def Jam Records with Russell Simmons. He's been around since the 80s, like on, on the scene. You know, he's done music for Beastie Boys, Linkin Park. Jay-Z, Kanye West, Eminem, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Adele, Johnny Cash, Metallica, like you name it. He even produced The Day the Laughter Died, which was Andrew Dice's, Dice Clay's like 1990, like uber famous comedy album. And there's like a, a mystique behind him. I spoke about Rick Rubin in the past. There's a great, uh, I think it's called Shangri-La um, documentary series that I believe I spoke about here on the podcast on uh, Showtime or HBO. I think it's Showtime though. You guys should check out. It's kind of 
gives you an idea of the mysticism behind Rick Rubin. And he's like this yogi-type, peaceful monk character person that walks around barefoot and brings out the best creative version of you when you when he chooses to work with you. And something this episode did amazingly was play on all those stereotypes of Rick Rubin and like the mystique behind them and exaggerate them and, and like make fun of them in a tasteful, funny way. There's a flotation tank in the episode, which is something that I've always wanted to to do. And I looked up here in the city in New York, there, there's like a flotation lab place that you can go to and like rent a tank for like a half hour or something like that. And I was like planning to do it pre-pandemic and then obviously didn't, but uh, definitely something that I, I plan to do. But what it was for me was the dialogue that Dave had with himself, with his creative subconscious self, with his ego. And it was like, it was just like a writer's block therapy session. So he goes into the flotation tank and, you know, the purpose of the, of a flotation tank, for those of you who don't know, it's like all your senses melt away because you are completely sealed off from the light. There's no light going in. So you get into this like egg shaped tank, door closes behind you and it's like a pool of water which is filled up with so much salt, uh, sodium, that your your body is buoyant. So you float no matter what, hence the term flotation tank, and the water is set to a temperature that is your exact body temperature. So you don't even feel anything. So you're in complete pitch black darkness. You don't hear anything. So it's sensory deprivation. It's depriving your senses. Your sight is gone. Your hearing is gone. At least at, in terms of like you're hearing outside the tank, obviously. You're completely still. You're floating. You don't feel anything. And the idea is that you wind up having like either psychedelic trips or you just like really get into yourself. And it's like meditating on steroids, basically. And again, I haven't done it yet. That's my understanding of it from how I've heard it explained. So he goes into this tank and then he eventually winds up having this like deep conversation with himself, with his ego. And by the end of it, dope dialogue, by the way, really, really good dialogue. By the end of it, he like breaks out of this like writer's block. And during that session, like his ego even plays for him like clips of certain songs that he just like throws together right then and there, like a hook and says this, says that, and just like strings along a couple songs. And you see Dave like ticking in all these ideas. And he's like, these are your ideas. This is how easy it is for you to do it if you'd like get past your own like bullshit and then he comes like out of that and like jets to like the recording studio and starts like laying down music then episode 10 the series finale or season finale rather is outlined as with pressure mounting as he records his debut album dave has some decisions to make about what he's willing to sacrifice now what was most notable to me probably to most people from this episode is the argument that he gets into with Gata. And for us as the audience, it's like an exploration of perspective. Two people arguing and both sides making such excellent points that it's like, who's right? Is there a right? Is there one right side? Or is it you're right about these three things, but I'm right about these four things. You're right about those five things, but I'm right about these two things. And again, it goes to how masterfully this aspect of the writing throughout the entire show is, which is 
when there's a difference of opinion or when they're tackling a stereotype or anything that has multiple sides, like a multi-dimensional argument, you get it fleshed out honestly, openly, and credibly. It's not like you're trying to downplay the side that you're, as a writer, clearly on or against, rather, and then big up the side that you're really on and try to make that other, the side that you're against look bad. It's like both sides, both perspectives have extremely valid points. And again, we see that throughout the show where a lot of differences of opinion are like ideologically fleshed out and explored, but still maintaining the level of writing. Like the, it's still engaging. It's still funny. It's still witty. It's still interesting to watch because I struggle with this. It's not like, um, and I've done this, but poorly, (laughs) um, And I strive to do exactly the same thing within my writing a lot of the times, but I don't execute it well. When I attempt to do this, it just comes off as kind of, how do I say it? Like cold, like textbook, like no soul kind of. Like I can list out, you know, this is why I think I'm writing this argument, blah, 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 blah. And then the other side, wait, this is why I think I'm right, because blah, 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 blah. But it just comes off as like pros and cons listed on opposite sides of a page whereas all throughout the show and again a testament to the writing it's like done in such a way where you still convey all those like pros and cons but in a very engaging way that maintains the level of writing and for the viewers their interest and engagement with the show and the last thing i'll say about dave season two which is interesting and i wonder if they're gonna play more of this up throughout the series uh, in season three, which is that we find out that Gaeta's name is also David. And even on social media, you know how shows picked up on, I guess uh, some time ago, and some shows do it, some don't, but you know, certain shows or movies or whatever, within their social media, they'll pick up on the fact that one could bleed into the other, right? And sometimes we will watch a show with like a superstar that like takes a selfie on stage with the crowd behind them and then we'll go on their social media and that actual picture is actually there on their social media kind of you know doing things like that to like keep the audience engaged etc gate on his social media put up a meme that i saw which is why i'm I'm, you know curious if they're gonna continue to like play this up throughout the the series that said something to the effect of gata is dave dave is gata because you know i guess playing on the fact that both their it's revealed that both their names are, are david and I wonder if that's going to be a theme or not. Dave, you know, Lil Dicky is always neurotic and negative, where Gata is always positive. But Lil Dicky has things more together, whereas Gata is like less so. Lil Dicky is like the definition of an artist that wants to put out good art and make people feel good. And Gata is bipolar and struggles with mental illness issues and is trying to make music it's like a struggle for him to make his own music gate is black little dicky's white little dicky has money gate doesn't it's like a yin and a yang type of thing going on and they wrap the show super spoiler alert by the way because obviously i've been kind of sort of like outlining and, and there were spoilers throughout this recap of season two but this one right here is like a super spoiler so now's your chance to fast forward a bit after Lil Dicky and Gata get into this argument where they're seemingly going to go like their separate ways and, you know, Lil Dicky has like this huge performance on the 
like VMA is like his biggest performance ever and he's trying to do some like over the top gonna go viral everyone around the world is gonna see it type of thing he has one of these because of the argument with Gata he has one of these now I'm not missing the forest for the trees moments I'm seeing how my interactions with Gata and how I treat Gata is affecting him etc and we see him give up like the planning and and plotting of this like huge VMA performance to put his boy Gate on and just do songs with him on stage on the biggest stage that he's ever been on and he shows his appreciation finally to his manager played by Andrew Santino and to uh Taco who plays uh, Els another music producer on the show they're like his boys that came up with him and that's how the show wraps but i wonder cuz they kind of sort of left it open to like if they decided to start season three with oh that's that was just like gator's dream of what he wanted to happen as opposed to what actually happened like they could take that route i, I feel like they left it open for that which i hope they don't because it's kind of like cheesy-ish but then they could you know f- continue to flesh out kind of the little dicky missing the forest for the trees concept but i think they could still do that while maintaining that that actually happened that you know when he does again see the forest for the trees he makes the right quote-unquote moral decision within that situation and that's my take on little dicky season two definitely looking forward to season three again you can watch it on fx or stream every single episode on hulu as always i'll link to it in the episode notes for you guys to easily check it out andrew cuomo just to follow up on my previous coverage of that i think i called like the fall from grace he officially resigned as the 56th governor of the state of New York after serving for a decade between 2011 and 2021. He gave his two weeks notice on August 10th, 2021. And this was after the independent investigation by Letitia James, which is the New York attorney general and her office. And the fact that they found that Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women, including state employees. The women alleged that he made sexual comments and groped them and tried kissing them without their consent, inappropriately touched them, etc. Her office put out a report that's 168 pages long, which I will link to in the episode notes if anybody wants to check it out. And the report outlines their review of thousands of documents, emails, text messages, pictures, sworn testimonies from not just the alleged victims, but folks within the Cuomo administration, Cuomo himself, his fellow Democrats in the state Senate, state assembly, were already beginning uh, the plans to impeach him. And with that, he still maintained his innocence. According to him, from his perspective, in his mind, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't cross any lines. But he thought the right and noble, quote unquote, thing to do would be to step aside so that the state can go on with state business and not be sidelined by this massive type of sideshow. Which, by the way, he's still facing criminal investigations related to those harassment claims. Here's a quote from Letitia James, which is taken from one of the news articles that I will link to in the episode notes in case you guys want to check it out. And she said, quote, This is a sad day for New York because independent investigators have concluded that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women and in doing so broke the law, end quote. Then the article goes on to say that James's office questioned 179 people and reviewed over 74,000 documents 
in the months-long probe, which again resulted in the 168-page report, which I will also, as stated before, link to in the episode notes for you guys to check out. Now, that's a lot of fucking smoke. They know what they say. Where there's smoke, there's fire. So I wonder if his actual, because he's maintained his innocence the entire time and, you know, even, you know, leading up to the report being published, and I think even days after it being published, like, he was like, you know, I'm going to fight this, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder if it got to a point of, all right, you're still, you're going to face criminal charges. You could probably go to jail, et cetera, et cetera. If part of him resigning was in fact throwing in some sort of, you know, behind the scenes deal of, okay, I'm not going to do jail time. So I'll step down or I'll just do a house arrest or something like that. I don't know. Again, that's like me speculating. I'm not sure how that would work, but I'm doubtful of it just being like an altruistic, I'm going to step aside so the state could do, continue to do state's business type of thing. What's interesting to me, and I've touched on this before, and I think it says more about us as a society than anything else, is that his, and having such a large like fall from grace, where he goes from being so monumental throughout the COVID crisis in terms of just his leadership and being on TV and kind of being the, like that sturdy rock that it, a lot of us in the country were looking for during like the beginning times of, of COVID and like all the uncertainty and stuff like that. And kind of being like a steady voice of reason to the point that folks were kind of sort of hoping that there was a way to like swap him in to run against Trump for president instead of Biden <laughs> for him to go from that to resigning as governor took this sex scandal and where the nursing home death cover-up which is still being investigated by the FBI by the way which is just a whole separate thing like that didn't do it again I think it's like a testament of says more about society nowadays than than anything else and that is in no way meant to like disparage what the 11 women that accuse Como of doing the things that he did that were again corroborated by the attorney general's uh, reporting and investigation. But it is meant to highlight how oddly interesting it is that the Cuomo administration policies around COVID last spring forced nursing homes to take back residents that had been hospitalized for COVID, once they began recovery, he forced nursing homes to take them back. And that caused the COVID virus to spread like wildfire within nursing homes. And then the cover-up that ensued by his administration of covering up the death toll by more than half. I think it was like by two-thirds, which again is still being investigated by the FBI. The cover-up of something like 9,000 deaths. But the sex scandal is what does it. I don't know. And he could have warranted an Emmy by whatever metrics it is that you give Emmys out for, while also covering up policies that resulted in the deaths of thousands. You taking away his Emmy doesn't take away the fact that that cover-up and those alleged sexual harassments happened. That literally does nothing. It's like such clear, transparent, just like virtue signaling, which is gross in and of itself, but it doesn't change anything. Like, the fact that he was that like sturdy rock that folks, including myself, wanted him to like run for president instead of Biden, like that happened regardless. But this other atrocious nursing home scandal cover up thing also happened. The alleged sexual harassment also happened. Like two things can be true at the same time. You guys do understand that, right? It's just this retroactive cancel culture 
clear virtue signaling bullshit that is just like ugh, it's fucking gross in and of itself that whole movement that whole concept that whole idea you guys really have to stop that shit man you can't whitewash history and you also have to realize that more than one thing can be true simultaneously they're not mutually exclusive things one thing doesn't outdo the other he could have been the rock and source of stability that millions of people needed and were looking for during the pandemic while also sexually harassing women at the same time but i digress on the flip side on a lighter note Kathy Hochul, who was the lieutenant governor, has now become the first female governor of the state of New York. The lieutenant governor, similar to the vice president on the federal level, the lieutenant governor is a ceremonial type of role that does step in for the actual president, or in this case, the governor, should something happen to the governor, presides as like the tie-breaking vote for like the state senate, just like the vice president does for the United States Senate. But besides that is a largely ceremonial role. They had a, by both accounts, both on previous Governor Cuomo's and current Governor Kathy Hochul's tellings of it, they had a open and clear transition between the, the teams. And me, as a New Yorker, I'm definitely rooting for Kathy Hochul, hoping that she's able to excel at leading the state. And I'm definitely interested in in seeing how it unfolds. She has to continue through like what would have been uh, Cuomo's term, which uh, would have ended in in 2022, where he could have uh, ran for re-election. Obviously, that's the term that she has to fulfill now. So from now until uh, 2022, when she would be up for re-election if she chooses uh, to run at that time. So I'm definitely interested to see how that plays out in the handful of press conferences that, that I've seen her in um, since everything started going down. She definitely seems up for it and more than willing and able to handle the task at hand. After 20 years, America's longest war is coming to an end. And that's America's war in Afghanistan, which is scheduled to be quote unquote over as of August 31st, 2021. Now, one thing I think worth highlighting is that then-President Trump signed a peace treaty with the Taliban on February 29th, 2020, over a year ago, stating, and he also campaigned on this, that we were going to pull out of Afghanistan, hand the country back over to the Afghans, and that we would do so by, I believe it was March or May of 2021, as long as no harm came to any U.S. citizens or service members. The Biden administration came in and extended that from, again, March or May, whatever it was, to the August 31st date that we're at now. And much to, I don't want to say everyone's, but a lot of people's surprise actually pulled out, much to the chagrin of the military industrial complex, I'm sure. Now, there's a lot of back and forth on the actual pullout, the execution of the plan being done poorly conservative folks on the right saying that they're not against pulling out, but it's the way that we pulled out. Folks on the left echoing some of the same, but also highlighting the fact that we actually pulled out, which is something that the Trump administration promised to do. It's something that the Obama administration promised to do. It's something that the Bush-Cheney administration that got us into this fucking mess also promised to do, and nobody has done until now. And it definitely has been messy, you know, we all see have seen like videos and pictures of folks literally trying to hold on to the outside of, of planes to get out of the country. 
and like go into like the wheel mechanisms and try to get on evacuation planes just to like flee the country before the Taliban inevitably took over, which everybody knew was going to happen. Although everybody didn't expect it to happen within like the 10 or 11 days that it actually happened. There's a tragic suicide bomber attack that did kill almost a dozen service members and dozens of civilians. That was supposedly attributed to a terrorist group called ISIS-X or something like that that has a beef with the Taliban, supposedly. And I'm definitely not going to pretend to know military military strategy and what the right way of doing it was, what the wrong way of doing it was. But as an American citizen, from the outside looking in, although I concede the fact that it could have been most likely done in a better way. You know, one of the biggest criticisms that I see is, you know, how, you know, we first should have evacuated folks, left the military to the end, then, you know, blown up all our like buildings that we built and bases and got gotten rid of all the weapons instead of leaving all that for the Taliban to just pretty much take over. And I've seen videos. I don't know how true they are, how real they are. I don't know if we did do that. If we didn't do that, the criticism is that we didn't do that or enough of that. Um, and I've seen videos of like stacks and stacks of money and weapons just like left there, which if that's the case, that's obviously, at least from my perspective, wrong. Like that strategically that's like why would you do that why would you leave things behind that could be used against us on the flip side of that there is the inevitability of this is what was going to happen taliban were going to take over we always knew we just didn't think it would happen in 10 or 11 days but it was a foregone conclusion the russians the soviet union under gorbachev 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 were there for a decade couldn't do anything the british were there for years, couldn't do anything in terms of deterring what the main issue there is, which is a haven for terrorism. Alexander the fucking great had issues there. We were there for 20 years. And I'm not going to say that it was for nothing because our heroic military men and women served there and defended our freedoms with their lives. And we haven't had another 9-11 happen. And that I would imagine can be largely attributed to the fact that this haven of terrorism was being occupied for the past 20 years. And I've had conversations with a friend of mine that has served over there. And he pointed out that from a military perspective, it's also a strategic geographic location to be in, which is why the Russians tried occupying it or did so for 10 years, why we were there for 20, why the British were there. You could deploy to anywhere in the world more easily from there. You're also close to China, close to Russia, geographically speaking. And that's definitely a perspective to factor in. But is it worth weighing against having a forever war? I don't think any of us know the answer to that. I don't know if there is a clear-cut right or wrong answer to that. I do know the costs for the past 20 years, what those have been. And I'm going to outline some here that I pulled from an article that, again, I'll link to in the episode notes for you guys to check out. In terms of human cost, and this is deaths, not to mention the limbs that folks have lost overseas or there in Afghanistan, rather, from the U.S. and other fighting forces from across the globe, as well as civilians there in Afghanistan, but just deaths, not factoring in also like psychological damage, PTSD, etc. American servicemen and women killed in Afghanistan as of April 2021. It's 2,448. U.S. contractors killed in Afghanistan, 3,846. 
Afghan national military and police killed 66,000. Other Allied service members, including from other NATO member states, 1,144. Afghan civilians, 47,245 killed. Taliban and other opposition fighters, 51,191. Aid workers, 444. Journalists, just covering and getting us information of what's going on over there. 72 journalists. That's in 20 years. That's a cost that has to be factored into that decision-making. Financial costs. It's estimated that as of 2020, the United States has debt-financed, meaning increased our debt, put all these costs on the country credit card, $2 trillion, with a T, $2 trillion directly in fighting the Afghanistan and Iraq war, half of which is attributed to Afghanistan alone. And it's estimated that by 2050, when you factor in interest, that amount rises to $6.5 trillion by 2050. So that's as of now, stopping the war, not spending any more money there. We already owe $6.5 trillion in interest for the financial financing. And I say that to highlight the fact that there are other interests at play that you can't turn a deaf ear to, that you can't turn a blind eye to. There is a military industrial complex. There are those that profit from war. That $2 trillion that we spent so far, it goes somewhere. You know what I mean? It's not like some arbitrary figure that's like a calculated cost. Those are $2 trillion of taxpayer money that has gone somewhere. Contractors, strategists, weapons and munitions, the military itself, in all the cottage industries that support and that have a clear and huge financial interest in the war continuing to go on. And listen, I don't want another 9-11 to happen. Nobody does. But there are different perspectives to solving the same issues. Like I went once for work to this like seminar thing that they, they had us go to. And a takeaway that I got from that is the fact that there are different departments, uh, let's say like within finance, for example, will have and are equipped to solve problems based on their skill set. So if there's an issue within the company, the marketing department will find a marketing strategy to solve for that issue. The sales department will have a sales strategy to solve for that issue. The IT department will have an IT strategy to solve for that issue. The development department, so on and so forth. The operations team, so on and so forth. Similarly, the military itself has a militaristic, strategic, geographic location strategy for dealing with the issue. Academics are going to have their take on the best way to solve for the issue. Politicians and diplomats are going to have their diplomatic solutions for the issue. I think, as in with most, most things, it's not an either or. It's a combination of different strategies and different teams working together. There's no like panacea. And clearly not with fucking Afghanistan, which, again, dating back to Alexander the Great, people haven't been able to solve for the quote-unquote issue that is Afghanistan. But it does seem, and I do feel, that it is time to try a different set of solutions there. Again, every president from Bush and Cheney, who got us into this mess, Obama, who exacerbated drone strikes in lieu of, you know, not putting, you know, boots on the ground and more folks in harm's way. 
but that has its own set of issues because it's like drone strikes which were exacerbated under obama but then continued to be used and exacerbated under trump has like its own wacky crazy issues like it's not like i don't know if you guys ever saw the movie jarhead where you know you have a, a sniper team of two people the person pulling the trigger and and the spotter and the spotter is like looking at the person has them in their sights and tells them uh, the wind speed directions and then the sniper graduates his rifle to like you know two knots to the left because the wind is blowing x amount blah 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 blah, blah etc and then they get the okay from command and you see the person there in your sights and then you pull the trigger and boom you kill your target like drone strikes aren't like that drone strikes literally work with metadata it's this person this terrorist that we know has used this cell phone before we believe this cell phone is theirs and it's in this building right now that also has 40 other people there but the metadata metadata tells us that the terrorist that is our target is in this building and you know there's a school next door and you know a bodega down the block or whatever the fuck but the metadata tells us that he's there so boom drone strike just kill dozens of people to get that target. That's why I like the collateral, quote unquote collateral damage, which is other people that weren't involved dying because of a drone strike is something like 90% or something like that. Meaning that you kill the terrorists, but you, you know, you also kill nine other people that, you know, men, women, children that had nothing to do with anything that has its own set of issues. And that's like, again, exacerbated under Obama and then carried on by Trump and fuck that doesn't seem right either. And when it's all said and done, it's like this snowball effect of policies and ideas that result in tens of thousands of lives and trillions of dollars. It's like, is that the game plan? Is that the best we got? I hope the fuck not, because then the solution inevitably becomes just being the occupiers of the world. Who has the means and resources and people enough to occupy the whole fucking world then? And that's definitely not the world that I want to live in or leave to my kids. And like my boy Forrest Gump said, that's all I got to say about that. The Five Borough Bike Tour 2021. So for those of you that are longtime listeners of the Spun Today podcast, you know that I am into cycling, bicycling. And at least once a year, last year, obviously COVID, everything was canceled, but usually once a year. I do some sort of bike marathon with my brother who does it sometimes and my boy Pablo who's been on the podcast as well. Shout out to them. Spun Today alum. We do either the five borough bike tour, which is a dope ride. One of my favorite rides. And it's 40 miles through all five boroughs of New York City. And they close a bunch of streets and tunnels and bridges that you get to ride over. So there's no cars. And it's a, a really dope experience. And I've also done the Hudson Valley. This was going to be my fifth time doing the the five borough. And I got a tune-up on my bike. And that's where things started going wrong. So I decided to get a tune-up. Like before, I think 2019, we did the Hudson Valley. I didn't even get a tune-up. I went, did the Hudson Valley. It was great. Um, But before then, I used to get a tune-up like before each of the five boroughs, et cetera, right? And a tune-up for folks that don't know for a bike it's like similar to like a car but you know like they check your brakes they check the like your air pressure you know lube up the fucking wheels or whatever make sure everything's like working properly change the brakes if you have to etc and it's uh, pretty much a check to make sure your bike is on point everything's working properly so you can go do what you got to do 
and I was like, you know, I didn't get it for the the Hudson Valley last time, and that was what like I think it was like a thirty mile ride. And I haven't been using the the bike too much since, especially like during the pandemic and stuff like that. So definitely let me get it before uh, going to the five borough. But I didn't feel like going to the spot that I normally go to because it was a little further away. So I was like, let me see if there's another spot that I can go to. And that was mistake number fucking one. So the moral of that piece of the story is if you get good service where you go for whatever it is that you go for, why gamble? Why fuck it up? If it's not broken, don't fix it. So I went to this new spot and... They were nice, you know, there's something off about the spot. It seemed like a, I don't know, like a little ghetto-ish and they were nice and friendly, but a little too much, but the price was about the same. It was closer. I was like, whatever, it's a fucking tune-up, who cares? Uh, the bike felt good when I picked it up. You know, I, I put it away in my bike room about a week and a half later. I go downstairs the morning of, you know, I'm up at like five in the morning. We're going to get there early and pumped. I go downstairs to get my bike and the back tire is completely flat completely flat like no air in it at all and i'm like what the fuck that's not supposed to happen <laughs> you know what i mean like normally like if the bike is you know dormant for a while like like and i mean months you know weeks months you know some air gets let out of the tire but not like completely it was like somebody just fucking like slashed my tire or something like what the fuck so we go to the gas station me and pablo and then I uh, put air in the tire, it fills up with air, all right, good to go, whatever, I put air in it like I normally do. I had these fucking Presta valves, which are, for those of you who don't know, there's something called a Schrader valve and a Presta valve. Uh, Schrader is like the usual valve where you put air in, like your car tire, or your bike tire, especially here in the States. Presta valves are these thinner versions of that are more prevalent in France and other places in Europe and bikes that have like really skinny tires. Uh, normally have them, uh, etc. So my bike had them, even though I don't have like the Uber skinny tires, but I had Presta valves on my fucking bike, always did. So whenever I put air in the tire, I had to use like this adapter connector thing to make it work with like the pump at the gas station and stuff like that. And I fill up the back tire, it's fine. Then the front tire was like a little light. So I was like, it could use a little bit of air. Let me just, you know, here might as well. Let me just pump it up. I go to pump it up, completely empties out. I'm like, what the hell? Then I had to refill up the quarters for the air machine. And I went through, long story short, I went through like four or five bucks in quarters trying to refill that fucking tire. Again, the front tire, the back tire is the one that was initially empty. And it filled up, it was fine. And I go through four or five bucks in quarters trying to refill up the front tire, which is not taking air. It'll take the air. I go to close the, the valve, completely empties out time and time again, time and time again, time and time again. Tried like a dozen times. Then, mind you, it's like fucking six in the morning. It's on a Sunday, the day of the bike tour. Bike shops are normally closed on Sundays. Those that open up, and I checked and I called a bunch, open up like around 10, 11, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. We're supposed to start the race like at 7, 7.30. That clearly didn't happen. <laughs> Failing to prepare, preparing to fail. I should have checked the bike like the night or two before, even though you know it was like a week and a half before when I did the tune-up, which again, I hadn't done in two years. So I figured it was more than ready, the bike. Like I didn't have to check on it. So the last thing on my mind was that the it would have a fucking flat. And I'm frustrated because of that. And I also don't, you know, I'm also doing this with my boy Pablo and I'm like ruining it for him because he was like prepping for it also. And I'm like, fuck it, let's just go. Maybe 
you know, they do have like bike stands over there. Like once you start the actual race, it's usually like throughout the race that like help like fix bike issues and stuff like that. But I wouldn't be able to actually even start the race. So it was like we started heading there and then we were like thinking about it on the way and we were like, fuck it, we're going to go for nothing. We're going to drive all the way to fucking Staten Island to then take the ferry into the city to then hope that maybe but before the starting line, there's like somewhere to fix my fucking bike. Um, and again, I tried a couple bike shops called in Staten Island and Queens and nothing. So at some point just felt like forcing it and uh, decided not, uh, not to. Went to have breakfast instead somewhere in brooklyn we found a place called bagel boy which was off the fucking hook shout out to bagel boy i definitely recommend it I'll, i would drive out to brooklyn again to get breakfast from there it was by like brighton beach like that area around there in brooklyn it's called bagel boy had a dope everything bagel with like egg whites and turkey and cheese and they just had like 15 different options of like different types of cream cheeses and a bunch of different breakfast sandwiches and there was a line, which is always a good sign at a, at a food spot, right? Whenever there's a line. It was really fucking good. But anyway, long story short, I wasn't able to partake in the five borough. I don't know. Maybe it was a sign. Maybe I would have fucking tripped and fell off the Verrazano Bridge or some shit. Um, but I am looking into the possibility of getting my like admissions ticket, money, whatever. They like, transfer over to a different race like next month or in a couple months. So maybe I'll still be able to salvage the year and do something like that. But I will keep you all posted on that. And that's it. That's the show, folks. That is episode 188 of the Spun Today podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate you guys sticking around this long to listen. And I hope you stick around for a bit longer to listen on some ways that you can help support the Spun Today podcast if you so choose. Peace. What's up, folks? Tony here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast as much as I enjoy producing it for you. Here are a few quick ways that you can help support this show. You can support the Spun Today podcast by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. There you'll find my merch section where you can cop the iconic podcasts versus anybody t-shirt in a wide variety of different colors and all different sizes. Also, if you're into cycling, you can cop the super soft, comfortable, minimalist design Spun Today Bike Club t-shirt. Also available in a bunch of different colors and all different sizes. There are a few other designs of different types of t-shirts. Definitely go there and check it out. SpunToday.com forward slash support. It's the merch section where you can also get a dope coffee mug. I have coffee mugs with the brand new redesigned Spun Today logo on one side and the tagline that I end every show with on the other which is start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. The mug is available in both black and white because we don't discriminate here at the Spun Today podcast. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash support and check out the merch section. You can support the Spun Today podcast by checking out my writing. You can go to spuntoday.com forward slash free writing and check out some of my free association writing, which is intended to be some cathartic free writing, but oftentimes doubles down as motivation for myself and others. At spuntoday.com forward slash short stories, you can read a bunch of the different short stories that I've written and actually listen to the audiobook versions of those short stories there as well. Another way you can help support my writing is by going to spuntoday.com forward slash books and checking out what I have in store for sale. Digital copies are available in all formats, 
whether it be Kindle, iBooks, or a different type of e-reader. You can also purchase paperback copies, if that's your preferred reading method. Currently available, I have my nonfiction, Make Way For You, which is a collection of freely written thoughts that were curated and put together as tips for getting out of your own way. Also available is my debut time travel novel titled Fractal. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash books to show your support. Support the Spun Today podcast by following me on social at Spun Today on Twitter at Spun Today on Instagram. Please also check out and like my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Spun Today and subscribe to my YouTube page as well. On my YouTube page, not only will you get these full length episodes, but you'll also get to check out some chopped up clips and bonus content. To get to my YouTube page, just search Spun Today on YouTube or click on any of the YouTube icons on the footer of my website. Also, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever it is that you're listening. It really does help. The Spun Today newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free. All you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. You're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address, and you'll get the very next one. If you want to help support the Spun Today podcast financially, you can do so by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. Here you'll find a few different ways that you can do so. You can shop on Amazon, but first go to my website, spuntoday.com forward slash support, click on the Amazon banner, which will take you to Amazon's website where you do your shopping like you normally do. It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. Another cool way that you can help support this show is through Patreon, where you can set up reoccurring donations to my podcast, whether it be $1 per show, $2 per show, etc. And depending on how much you choose to pledge, you will receive some Patreon perks in return. Things like free writing pieces, free bookmarks, free digital copies of my books, etc. Again, my Patreon link can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. You can also set up similar reoccurring payments via my Ko-fi page. And if you want to send a one-time happiness bomb donation, if you will, you can do so via my PayPal link. Again, all of which can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. If you're a fellow creative, a cool way that you can help support the Spun Today podcast and actually be part of the podcast is by filling out my five-question questionnaire located at spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Here you'll find five open questions related to your craft, your art, what inspires you to create, what type of unrelated hobbies you're into, and what motivates you to get your work done. You can choose to remain anonymous or plug your website and your work. And once you submit your questionnaire, I read your responses on a future episode of the Spun Today podcast. 
It's completely free at no cost to you. And what I like to say about it is that if your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? Spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. And as always, folks, substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. Thanks for listening. I love you, Aiden. I love you, Daddy.